You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. 1 John 3, 19-24 By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thanks, Ruby. Good morning. My name is James. If I haven't met you, I'd love to. After church, I'm on staff here and uh, serve as an elder and would love to get to know you. Um, Before we jump into our text... Uh, this will come in the announcements too, but I just want to highlight it because it's in, important. But we have a family meeting tonight. Um, yeah, and they're fun. Uh, just as like probably rhythms in your own family, it's important to gather every once in a while and just hear just the life of what's going on, um, just sharing information, updates, rejoicing uh, what God is doing and praying, uh, asking the Lord for more um, of his work in our midst. And so it's an important time. Uh, Members, we really, really strongly encourage you to be there, Uh, but this is not exclusive to members. Um, If you've been attending the Vine or just want to learn more about the Vine, this is an awesome opportunity uh, just to check out our DNA. But we invite you. There's food. Um, If that scares you, just pick up some chicken at Pick and Save um, or Taco Bell, like I always do, um, and come on over 4.30. It's important that you actually get here on time because we actually want to start uh, for the sake of our littles who have bedtime fast approaching. So 4.30, I hope you can come. Uh, but we're going to, as Ruby just read, uh, continue out of First John. And just by way of introduction, I just wanted to say this uh, as part of my introduction, uh, that baseball was and is still my favorite sport. Baseball. We got baseball fans? I should have gone soccer, I guess, on this weekend, right? But I was the kid, I was the kid uh, when I was little that I would rush home from school and immediately go outside and against myself, mind you, play backyard baseball. I had lineup cards and everything. I loved baseball. I rushed out there immediately. I was the kid who every Saturday morning got up very obnoxiously early. And what did I do? I got my baseball card collection out. And I had like that little manual where you could calculate how much the value of your cards were and kind of keep track of it and sort them. Uh, I was that kid who got up on Saturday mornings. That's how I spent my Saturdays. I loved baseball. I still do. And when I was in sixth or seventh grade, I tried out for a super competitive, at least looking back, I, I think it was, <laughs> uh, but super competitive elite baseball team. And, and it was a team that would travel the entire state of Iowa playing other competitive teams. But here's the deal. I, I love baseball. I love all sports. 
But I was always and still am just like this middle-of-the-road athlete, like never the best at baseball, not like great, but not terrible either, just like average. I was always middle-picked on, on the recess teams, like I was right in the middle always. But I was also like really, really short, like the shortest in my class until 11th grade. That's how terrible it was for me. So baseball enthusiast, yet middle-of-the-road short athlete trying out for this super competitive, elite, traveling baseball team. I was not hopeful of making it. But I tried out, and surprisingly, shockingly, I made the team. I made the team. And I was excited. I remember being really excited, but I also remember feeling even more so nervous and worried. I remember like shaking, not just from excitement, but shaking really from doubt. Doubting if I really was good enough. Doubting if I really belonged on such an elite traveling baseball team. Doubting I'd measure up with my teammates who were a foot taller than me. It was a vivid memory for me as I look back in my childhood of, of just doubting something, of lacking confidence in who I was. Have you ever had doubts like that before? Have you ever shared a doubt like that? A doubt that says you're not good enough. A, a doubt that says you, you don't belong. A doubt that says you won't measure up no matter what you do. Maybe not on a baseball team, probably not on a baseball team. But, but what about in your academic pursuits? What about in your relationships, your friendships, your marriage? What about in work or in parenting? What about in your faith? What about in your faith? Have you ever asked God, do, do I really measure up God to your standard? Like, have I sincerely or sufficiently believed? Have I sufficiently believed? Have I sufficiently repented? Like, am I truly saved? Ever asked, like, am I actually going to heaven? Have you ever wrestled with these questions in your faith? I have. And it's very human-like to do so, to question our faith, to lack an assurance, a confidence in our relationship with God. And though we've seen as we've gone through 1 John in, in, in many ways, but in the very first verse of chapter 3, John reminds us of God's position towards us in saying, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. John reminds us over and over of God's position, like, behold, see God's love for you. Behold, church, the love of God. God loves you. That is God's truth. But often, we don't always look or believe what God says. But we look to how we feel, don't we? We often look not to what God says, but to how we feel. If you're not yet there with me, turn with me to 1 John 3. If you have a Bible, if you don't, there's some in the back. I encourage you actually to look at the text with us this morning. 
And as we have come into chapter three, we, we see that John really has finished up what I think is really a, a tough teaching. It's been a tough teaching from John. We see in verses four through 10 that he calls the Christian to this, uh, this, this life of purity, to, to righteousness, to, to holiness, going as far as to say whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, right? That's tough teaching. And then what we heard last week in verses 11 through 18, he calls the Christian to this, this eager, generous love, going as far as to say that we, we ought to lay down our lives in love for one another. That's challenging, right? These are convicting, heavy words that John has just told us to live. Words that really lead us to doubt, to questioning, like, am I actually living this out? I la- last week, I imagine very few of us like walked out of this space saying like, man, I'm just nailing it when, when it comes to Christian love. As Jesus has loved the church, like, man, I am doing that too. Instead, I bet most of us walked out of here feeling I ain't done love right. Maybe you speak more proper. I haven't done love right. Because I I have a heart that judges more than it loves. I have a heart that's more angry and embittered than a heart that loves. I have a heart that envies and is jealous rather than loves. We we look into our heart and we feel little confidence about what the way we're pursuing love or the way we're pursuing holiness. And so we, we feel or we question or we doubt, am I really a Christian? Am I really a Christian? Well, John is a seasoned pastor, and he knows that at this point in his letter, after saying these hard things about love and holiness, that his church would really be primed for doubt, ripe for the picking. So John offers the ancient church then and to us now precious words of assurance and comfort this morning. That the Christian need not be filled with doubt, but filled with an assurance of God's Love for his children. Let's again pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us. Father, we come to you in this moment acknowledging our need for you. Lord, would you open our hearts to your word and your word to our hearts. Lord, we pray by the power of your word, what you say to be true, we would believe today. We ask for your help. It's your name we pray. Amen. Well, our direction is simply to follow John this morning. We're going to see John give some assurances for a heart that's doubting. Assurances for a doubting heart. And then secondly, as we see what those assurances are, we're going to see blessings or benefits to an assured heart. So what is our assurance and what is the blessing of that assurance? And let me be clear as, as we talk about an assurance for a doubting heart that John really has in mind those who've professed faith in Christ. And, and, and so if that's you, this is, this is God's assurance. This, is, this isn't my words. These are God's words to you, Christian. His words of assurance. And if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, then these words can be true for you. You can turn to God and ask for it. 
But how do we deal with a, a doubting heart to a heart that says, I don't measure up? To a heart that says, I don't belong? To a heart that says, my faith is not enough? John gives us two assurances to defeat our doubt. Two assurances to defeat our doubt. One, he will say that God has put his love in our hearts. And secondly, he will say that God is greater than our hearts. We'll work through these together. First, God has put his love in my heart. Look at verse 19 with me. John writes, by this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. So, so how, how are we to know if we are of the truth, as John says? How are we to reassure our heart before him? John says, by this, by this you shall know. By this you shall be, know that you're of the truth. And by this, reassure our heart before him. So what is the this? What is the this there in verse 19? I, I believe John is actually looking backward. That John is looking backward, really, to his instruction in the preceding paragraph on Christian love. As we heard last week, that the Christian, as we look at verse 18, is to love not just in, in how we talk, but in, in what we do, our, our actions. That the Christian is to love, as it says in verse 17, not with a, a, a hand that's closed against those in need, but generously loving those around us. That the Christian, as we see there in verse 16, is, is to, to, to willingly like lay that down their life. Like this is talking about death, like to lay down your life for one another. In other words, this, this sort of presence of Christian love that John is referring to by this, the presence of this Christian love is an evidence that we are of the truth. It's a proof to reassure our hearts. So if you're doubting your faith today or in the past or in the future or questioning your salvation, John is saying, Christian, there are actually tangible things from your life that you can point back to, to, to real ways that you've lived out this self-sacrificing Christian love as described here. We can point back to those evidences and know we are of the truth and reassure our hearts. And some of us may say, well, self-sacrificing Christian love isn't like exclusive to Christianity, right? And, and of course, lots of people from lots of cultures throughout time willingly lay down their lives for one another. It's not all done out of Christian motive, right? So we have to understand what is the distinctiveness of Jesus' love to understand how John could lay this sort of claim that this is the proof of our assurance. And the distinctiveness of Jesus' love is rooted in the reality that the laying down of his life was not for friend or for country, as it commonly is, but he laid down his life for who? His enemy, his foe, the sinners, you and I. The Apostle Paul in Romans 5 writes that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, in a few verses he'll actually call sinners enemies, opponents, hostile to God. But God shows his love and that while we were enemies, Christ does what? He dies for us. But Christ's love is, is not just that he saves us, that he saves the enemy. It's not just that he saves his enemy. It goes further. Christ, the distinctive love of Jesus, also reconciles his enemies to himself 
in a way that makes them members of his own family. And as John will say in Revelation, his spouse, from, from enemy to spouse, freely, willingly, sacrificially, generously, eagerly, that's the distinctiveness of Jesus' love. And so regardless of our dislike or annoyance we may have in one another, we've been charged to live out this distinct Christian love, as John says, to generously share our goods, to eagerly meet the needs of one another, even willing to lay down our lives for all of us who, apart from Christ, may be our enemy, right? This is the distinctiveness of Jesus' love that John calls the Christian to live. And it's a love that can only be produced by God in us. For in our hearts, every time is always me, me, me. My, my, my. I, I, I. Right? It's a, it's a supernatural love that supplants our most natural self-seeking and self-pleasing hearts that we are born with. God puts his love in us. And it's the existence of this distinct love within us, things that we never would have done if not for this love God has put in our hearts that is our evidence, is our proof, is our assurance that we are of the truth. As John says, are you with me? Now, some of us may struggle on this thought that I would actually possess this distinct Christian love as taught by John and demonstrated by Jesus. And, and we may say something to the fact like, I want to love like that. I want to love like that, but my love always seems to fall short. Or my love always seems to lack. I, I feel that. I feel like I've said that a lot. And John, in our, in our next verses, we'll see, will address this. But I, I want to encourage you as well. I believe this is true, that the very desire to love like Jesus is an evidence of God at work in your life. The very desire to love like Jesus is an evidence of God at work in your life. Do you believe that? Maybe think of it like this. When, when I held Lucy, our oldest, our six-year-old, for the very first time, there was just this new love that flowed into my heart. Something happened in the hospital. Like I was radically altered and changed. I didn't possess this love the day before. But when I held her in my arms for that first time, all of a sudden there was this love that sprang into my heart. And as soon as this love arrived, as quickly as it arrived, I also discovered it can also dry up real fast. During that first middle of the night, endless crying, incessant crying, screaming crying that won't ever stop crying, was my heart filled with this radically altering love for my little girl? Ah, it was hard to find. My heart was filled with frustration, with anger, like, put this baby back, right? But when you reflect on that moment over a cup of coffee the next morning, as new parents often do, 
you begin to feel or question or doubt some things. Like, what kind of parent am I? How can I be so angry at this little thing? And we start to want, do I even love my child? And these doubts, these questions, they, they communicate feelings, but what is actually true? And the truth is, I love my little girl. I do. I'm running into the house that's on fire every time to save her, right? That's what's true. In one particular moment, I did behave unloving. But what is my general trajectory of my heart? As followers of Jesus, we experience something similar. Our our love, it's not always going to be perfect. Our our love is going to lack often. We're going to fail. But I encourage you to examine where's your heart going? What's the general trajectory? We need to ask questions to examine our hearts to, of, of, of the sort of like, am I compelled? Am I, do I have a compulsion to serve and meet the needs of one another? Is that a compelling desire that I have? Do I possess a sincere love? Is there a desire to live or to love as Jesus loved? As you ask yourselves those questions, this desire to love as Jesus loves is an evidence of God at work in your heart. I want you to be encouraged in that. John gives us two assurances to defeat our doubt. First, John says, look backward. Look at the tangible evidences of God at work in your life. Look backward. And secondly, we'll see that John says, look out and up. Look out and up. For God, he will say, is greater than our heart. Verse 20. Actually, before we do that, I'm skipping ahead. John says, look out and up to God who's greater than our heart. And the reason why he does that is he knows, as we've just talked about, that peering backwards isn't always going to suffice. It's not always going to suffice. Because when we, you know, do, you know, look, do more introspection of ourselves, every turn, every angle of that, we begin to second guess our motives, don't we? We begin to doubt the sufficiency of our obedience. We, we question if we really did enough. Compared, as we've said, to the high standard established by Jesus, we internally know we are nowhere near that mark. And so we often just feel rotten about ourselves, don't we? That we don't measure up, that we don't belong, that we aren't good enough. And so we take these doubts and we begin to condemn ourselves. We look at our failures and we punish ourselves. We beat ourselves up. We condemn our hearts. And so as a fellow human being, Pursuing Jesus, John understands this reality, and he wants the church to understand a foundational gospel truth. That it's not how we feel, but it's what God says. Are you with me? It's not what we feel, but what God says. So so now read with me in verse 20. John says, for whenever our heart condemns us, When we're in this place of self-condemnation, beating ourselves up for our failures, when our heart condemns us, what? God is greater than our hearts. That's what he wants the church to believe. 
God is greater than our hearts, meaning this, our hearts are not the final judge. Our hearts are not the final judge. Though we know internally every which way we haven't measured up to the standard of God, we're not ultimately the final judge. God is. God is the judge. And as our judge, God does not condemn the Christian. He doesn't. He doesn't. We know Romans 8.1, Paul says, there is therefore now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me be clear, this does not excuse or dismiss sin or failure on our part. It does not mean we are not guilty, for we are, every one of us, guilty. Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You're guilty. So so what's going on here with what John is saying? These words of condemnation and and guilt or even conviction. What, What are all these words meaning? These are legal words, aren't they? And I just want to, I want to tease this out. Although we know this, I want to tease it out. That if you're tried for a crime, after the defense, the prosecution, after they rest, the judge renders a verdict of your guilt, right? You're either convicted or you're acquitted. And if you're acquitted, you're set free. You're innocent. Go live your life. If convicted means you've been found with guilt, you're you're guilty in which following that verdict, there'll be a subsequent hearing of your sentencing, which is your condemnation. Condemnation is the lawful punishment of the guilty offender. So, So in our case before God, our judge, we, everyone, the Bible has said, is with sin, so we are guilty. So it goes to follow that after our rendering of guilt, being convicted of this charge that our condemnation, our sentencing would follow, right? But Paul says also in Romans 8, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Meaning Jesus, without guilt, innocent, took our guilt, took our condemnation, took our deserved sentencing upon himself. I want, I want to make this really clear, clear. We were not acquitted. We were not acquitted. We were convicted to be condemned to death. But it was Jesus who stood condemned in our place. You see, the condemnation for every one of our failures and sins, it's already been dealt with. Jesus paid it. It is no more, which is why Paul says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So no matter how you feel, what God says he's forgiven, he's forgiven. That's truth. It's not my truth. It's it's God's truth to you. And so we have to reassure ourselves by his judgment, not ours, his, which alone is trustworthy and true and eternal. Our assurance is never in our performance or our obedience. Our assurance is always and forever in another's performance and another's obedience, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Our hearts are not the final judge. Isn't that comforting? Isn't that hopeful? 
Isn't that wonderful? Amen? Some of us may be thinking, but if God were to know every failure and every sin, then this wonderful amen news is not for me. Some of us may be thinking that. Look at verse 20 again. When our heart condemns us, God is greater and he knows everything. And he knows everything. You see, there's absolutely nothing about ourselves that God doesn't already know. God knows the absolute worst already within me. He already sees the dark, evil corners of my heart. It's not surprising to him. In fact, he knows what's more wrong about myself than I do. And yet, and yet he stood in my place. He stands in your place, taking your guilt and your condemnation and went to the cross and paid it all for you. The good news, the gospel of Jesus is good news for everyone. If you don't know this love, this type of forgiveness, it could be yours today. You can ask God for it today. And salvation, the Bible says, God says, is yours. And if you do know this love, this forgiveness, we don't, we don't have to wallow in our failures or our sins. We don't have to shackle ourselves to a prison of self-condemnation or despair because the gospel keeps us from self-condemning our hearts. We, we don't crucify ourselves for our sins and our failures. It doesn't work. It just prolongs the agony that we'll find ourselves within. It's just when we fail, when we sin, we simply come to repentance and faith. We turn to Jesus. So when we look at this idea of Christian love, when we fail to love, what do we do? We repent and turn to Jesus. When we don't live the, the life of holiness that God calls us to, what do we do? We repent and turn to Jesus. Where we fail, where we sin, we confess and turn to Jesus and begin practicing again His righteousness in us. Crucifying ourselves will never work, and neither will hiding your sin. And neither will hiding your sin. We cannot pretend it doesn't exist. Why? Because God knows everything. He knows every, exactly every time you've failed to measure up. And so we come, as John has already said in chapter 1, we come just confessing our sins, knowing that he is able, that he is, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the life of a Christian. And it's not this idea that God's like up there in heaven in his lazy boy, like waiting for you to find out your sin. But God's actually granted to us his spirit, our helper, the Holy Spirit to alert us to convict us of our sin. John writes in his gospel, John chapter 16, he says, and when he, in reference to the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So the Holy Spirit, our helper, comes to convict, but not to condemn. 
There's a difference. Convict because we are guilty. We have sinned. We will sin. So the Holy Spirit comes to convict but not condemn because Jesus has already paid our punishment. Friends, I want you to see this, that the reality of this gospel truth that God already knows our every fault and that he's given us his helper, his spirit to convict us of our wrong brings the Christian really this beautiful gift of honesty. It's this gift of honesty that we've been given. And without fear, we we come to God knowing there's nothing that we come to him with that he doesn't already know. And so we ask ourselves questions that I'm going to give you with great freedom. Because we're not going to surprise God in our answers. But I think we need to ask ourselves, is it hard for me to be honest with God? Why or why not? Is it hard for me to be honest? Is there a sin or, or pattern of sin I'm keeping from God? And if so, why? Is there something I need to confess to God? If so, what? Good or bad? As you think about those questions, God who knows every single one of your failure and shortcomings, my failures and shortcomings, is the same God who grants us, who assures us eternal life. You can't surprise God with your honesty. You can't shock God with your honesty. You can't. What you can do is rob the blessings and benefits of an assured heart. You can't shock God, but you can rob from yourself the benefits of an assured heart. So John turns from these two assurances to defeat our doubt, that we, we look backwards to the evidences of God at work in our lives, and secondly, we look, we look out and up to God who is greater. He turns from these assurances to the, to the blessings or the benefits of an assured heart, saying there in verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have, meaning if our heart is not in a place of self-condemnation, if our heart is rather in a place of assurance, we actually possess something here. If our heart does not condemn us, we have something. I want to highlight three things that I think John says that we benefit from by having an assured heart. Firstly, we see it right there in verse 21 that we have confidence before God. That we have confidence before God. We have confidence before God. If our heart is under self-condemnation, we'll approach God, I think, every time in fear or in trepidation, never knowing if we've done quite enough to gain his approval. But if our heart is assured, we understand that despite the deficiencies in my faith and obedience, the sufficiency of Jesus' life and death grants unrestricted access to enter the Holy of Holies, that we are loved, that we are welcomed in his presence, that we have a We have a a, a confidence in our standing before him. I see this illustrated so beautifully every Sunday morning as we're in the church lobby with so many of you little kids. It's clear that your child knows where they stand with you. 
in the midst of your adult conversations, what they're tugging on your pants, they're, they're clamoring to be held, they, they want to be with you. I know in the house of, of my house of three small children that there's, there's no subject off limits. And I'm sure this changes as kids get to be teenagers. Maybe not. Looking at Emery. But for, for, for us, my family, with kids under six, it, it's not uncommon at all for our children. Just this, today, this morning, one of my children came. And in all sincerity, talked through like a bodily function that's not maybe working, you know, good. Like that's not uncommon, right? Or to talk through maybe a private body part issue that's going on. Like there's no hesitation. There's no reservation. There's no embarrassment. It's just a confidence that, yep, you're my mom and dad. And I can come to you. You see, it's the same freedom. It's the same confidence illustrated by our children that demonstrates the freedom, the confidence we have with our heavenly father. This unrestricted access to our eternal creator and sustainer of our world. Assurance grants us confidence. Secondly, assurance in verse 22 John says, and whatever we ask, we receive from him. It's like, all right, sign me up. This is my punch card to selfishness, right? We keep reading. Whatever we ask, we receive of him because we keep. So, okay, I'm doing something here. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. And there's a lot here that we won't be able to get into today, but that is, I think John is just saying that as we obey and do the things that God desires for us to do, as we ask of him in those things, that he will answer us. Uh, think about it like this. When a, when a child comes to a parent and asks, can you teach me to read? Does the parent refuse? I don't think so, right? The parent desires for the child to be able to read, and so they lend help. If a child comes and says, hey, mom, dad, like, can you teach me how to share my toys? I think the parent's going to be like, yeah, I will teach you how to share my toys, right? That's a good thing to, to be unselfish. And so the parent helps. When the child shares the desire of the parent, when there's a harmony of will, 10 times out of 10, I think the parent is going to help their child. And I think John is saying the same things that God has, given, has desires for his children, for you and I. And, and he says what these desires are, that we see that in verse 22, that we believe in Jesus, or 23, that we believe in Jesus, that we love one another, that we do these things in obedience. So when we come to God asking for his help in living out these desires, our prayers are answered because our will is in harmony with God's. And there's more that needs to be said probably there on prayer. But I think that's a general principle. So we see that we have confidence. We see we have answered prayers. And, and thirdly and lastly, we see that we have this benefit or this blessing from the assured life of intimacy with God. Verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. And quite simply, a heart that condemns itself is ultimately a heart that's ruled by itself. It's a heart that sees itself as king. 
But an assured heart is a heart that bows to King Jesus. It's a heart that lives in step with his spirit. And I would just simply say, is there a closer fellowship? Is there a closer intimacy than that of the spirit of the eternal God living within us? The spirit of God lives in us. We have three benefits of an assured heart. We have confidence before God. We have answered prayers from God. And we have intimacy with God. And we've seen that in order to secure this assured heart, to defeat our doubt, John says for us to do two things, doesn't he? He says to look back, look at the evidences of God at work in your life. And he says, look out and look up. Look out and look up pointing really to the empty tomb of Jesus. That we don't focus on how we feel, but on what God says. And as we conclude, I read in my time this week on this passage of a conversation that D.L. Moody had, a longtime pastor, on someone who came to him and said, I don't feel saved. D.L. Moody responded, he said, well, was Noah safe on the ark? And the man replied, certainly he was. Moody responded, well, what made him safe? His feelings or the ark? If we were to go back to my baseball team when I was in sixth grade, I felt I had to prove something in that moment. I felt I had to perform to a certain standard to maintain my teammates' respect and to be on the team. But that's not how it works in our relationship with God. There's nothing to prove because Jesus proved it all on the cross. And so if you're in Christ this morning, if you trust in him for your salvation, it's not your feelings, it's not your efforts that will save you. It's Jesus it's believing what God says that puts you on the ark. So let's stay on the ark. Let's keep believing Jesus together. Amen? Father God, we praise you for your word. We thank you for this rich text that reminds us once more of our assurance in you, Jesus. That what you say is true. That the words that you have given to us in your Scripture, our, our life, eternal life. So Lord, I don't know where everyone is at this morning as we've come into this place. But I pray, Lord, by the power of your spirit, by the power of your words through this Apostle John, Lord, would you put us to life? Would you put your assurance in us? that we reject the way in which we might feel about something or how we feel about ourselves, and that we would look to the empty tomb and find great hope and comfort. Lord, help every single one of us, Lord, to grow in this gift of honesty. Lord, I pray that we would be a church known for being authentic and honest with one another and with you, God. Lord, we ask for you to do this in our lives. We praise you this morning. We love you. It's your precious name we pray. Amen.